you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Prairie Justice presents the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Comics Megasode that we're doing here, uh, examining Leading Comics number four from the fall of 1942. And today we're going to do chapter four. And our adventure today is going to feature the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, that great Star Spangled team of uh, crime fighters from the 1940s. Let's go back to where the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy started. We start in uh, their self-eponymous comic. Eh, it's not really, but it's called Star Spangled Comics. So it's one of those uh, great 1940s anthologies. It just happens to have the kid as the headliner. And that was uh, on sale in August of 1941, the cover date October 1941. And I think as most people probably know, this is the uh, sort of a twist on the old Batman-Robin kind of a theme. A you know great old lantern-jawed adventurer with a kid sidekick. Well, in this, the kid sidekick is the leader of the team, and the lantern-jawed hero is the, uh, I don't want to say subordinate, but more the junior partner. And I guess the reasons for this is uh, sort of who this character is. Sylvester Pemberton is a little older than your average Robin Sandy or Speedy are at this point in time. He's probably in his mid to late teens, 15, 16, maybe 17. Very well read, very well wealthy, an heir to the Pemberton banking fortune of New York City. While Pat Dugan uh, seems to be, uh, while he's the chauffeur for the Dugan family, he does seem to have a background uh, engineering or mechanics of some port perhaps as a power engineer and why he's uh, slumming as a chauffeur for the Pemberton fortune God only knows but I guess that's one of those untold stories that we sh somebody should get around to telling at some point and uh, the interesting thing that I like about the relationship between Pemberton and Dugan is that they don't seem to get along on the surface now, of course, when they put the costumes on, uh, it's all business. But uh, when they're around uh, their momsy and daddy, uh, they just don't seem to really get along. And uh, basically, mom and dad uh, like to see Dugan as a bodyguard for Sylvester. But Sylvester can pretty well take care of himself. He's got a lot of book learning. He's, uh, as I said, very well read. And he and Stripesy seem to uh, be able to mesh well together yeah, as a crime-fighting team. Uh, but I, I often think uh, very much, I've mused on this, I think, before. If you ever wanted to do these two as a, uh, as a sitcom, um, I think you could take the greatest American hero and the relationship between 
uh, Hinckley and Maxwell as a as an aid for that. Uh, two guys that on the surface don't get along but would die for each other. And of course, uh, that is all masked all right by their costumes, which is, you know, let's face it at this point in time, is nothing but a, a straight take or rip off on Captain America and Bucky. Now, an interesting situation in there is in, in late years, as we've reinterpreted the Captain America-Bucky relationship, especially since Winter Soldier, it has appeared that Bucky was more than just a kid that uh, tagged along with Cap on his wartime missions. He seemed to actually be a government or military agent who was there to kind of oversee Steve Rogers and make sure that he stayed on the straight and narrow, and I guess to make sure that the the asset stayed on target or stayed on mission. Not that that's a retcon, of course, but uh, it's something to sort of consider when uh, thinking about Captain America, the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. Now, they headed Star Spangled Comics up until 1948, issue 87, when Sylvester and Pat were supplanted by Sylvester's own sister. Uh, in a feature called Mary the Girl of a Thousand Gimmicks and that's sort of as comics were changing and uh, publishers tried to uh, try to find different markets and I guess they were looking more towards a, a girls market and uh, I guess the whole idea of the Stars and Stripes was becoming a little passe with the wartime fervor of patriotism uh, passing. Yeah. Now they did come back, of course, uh, with the seven soldiers in JLA 100, and start. And the kid himself joins the Justice Society in the All Star Comics revival in 1976, and he is also the impetus behind the uh, creation of Infinity Inc. Sylvester is the money man behind that that uh, operation, and of course, uh, not to uh, put spoilers on a. 35-year-old comic, but he buys the farm at the hands of Mr. Bones. Uh, Stripesy goes on, um, creates a, ro a mechanical robot for himself called S-T-R-I-P-E. Yes, that spells Stripe. And he gets married, and uh, his stepdaughter, Courtney, uh, Courtney Whitmore, sorry, um, of course, finds uh, Sylvester's old gear and becomes the Star-Spangled Girl and eventually, of course, Star-Girl in that wonderful Jeff John series from the 1990s, the, the early 2000s, rather, as she has become the, uh, the female avatar of the Cosmic Rod, just as Sylvester was. And so Stars and Stripe uh, have, has come back in recent times and is back on the stands again. And of course, Stargirl is a TV show. I think we've mentioned that before here in the Megasode. And it just adds that uh, Pat Dugan, of course, is the co-star of that show. And in season three, I don't think I'm giving away the farm, but I won't give away anymore because I know there's a lot of people that probably have not watched this show yet. And, with the whole thing of streaming and DVDs, uh, people just don't get around to watching things until later. And Sylvester Pemberton does come back in Season 3. And that's all I'm going to say about that. 
only that I would be remiss in not discussing who the Star Spangled Kids creators were. Uh, the, the founding artist was a cartoon artist by the name of Hal Sherman. We've talked about him before. And the writer, actual creator of Star Spangled Kid and Stripes, who came up with that wonderful idea of inverting the partnership, was none other than Superman creator Jerry Siegel. So, uh, for whatever you can say, however Siegel and Schuster got worked over on the Superman property, I hope at least that the Siegel family is getting uh, some payback with all of the popularity of, with Stargirl. Uh, they should, if they're not. And as we've said in the, uh, the, the first episode, uh, Ed, Bill Finger and Ed DeBrotka are the creators on writing and art on this respectively so uh, Jerry Siegel and Hal Sherman are getting a break from their regular uh, run on Star Spangled Comics as are the uh, other creators of the other characters as well so without further ado let's get introduced to the man who followed his nose Star Spangled Kid, Chapter 4 Meet one of crime's most bizarre characters, the Human Bloodhound. A man with a super sense of smell. He can detect the slightest scent, the faintest odor from miles away. Follow his uncanny scenting nostrils as the Bloodhound tracks down the third of the mystery gems a sea-green emerald, to the very sea itself. But then comes trouble, double trouble, in the persons of that wise-cracking, jaw-cracking team, the star-spangled kid and stripesy. Here's the action-packed adventure of The Man Who Followed His Nose. Roaring over the state highway is a car of strange, streamlined design, the Star Rocket Racer. Well, gee, kid, that's one angle we didn't expect. The Sixth Sense's man is to steal an emerald that belongs to my father, John Pemberton. Say, didn't the guy who originally owned the emerald die and leave it to your pop? That's right, Stripesy. He was under financial obligations. Dad made the emerald into a ring for Mother. He also left Dad a failing perfume factory. A perfume factory? Ha! The guy got paid off in cents. Ouch! Anyway, Dad and Mom are so interested in it, they built a penthouse above the factory and are living there for a while. Say, if your mom has that emerald, she's inviting trouble. I know. That smell guy had a head start of hours long. We'll cut down his time with a switcheroo. Switcheroo. And the car becomes a man-made meteor that slices the sky with dazzling speed. But is that speed sufficient to balk the evil events of four hours ago when? Okay, the sixth sense says you're a boss. Now, what's the handle? Call me Bloodhound. 
with my super sense of smell. That's what I am, the human bloodhound. The man who owns the emerald owns a perfume factory. And that's why the boss gave me a sense of smell. I'm to get a job there and case the place. And so, shortly after, in the foreman's office. You heard me. I can identify every aroma separately, even though you open up those bottles of perfume all at once. Impossible. No man can do that. The perfume bottles are opened, and clouds of anonymous aromas intermingle. But... <laughs> ah, I detect gardenia, sweet pea, lilies of the valley, and lilacs. You did it. Picked out every one of those delicate aromas. Mister, you're hired. From now on, you're our official perfume smeller. I'm in. Now all I need is some dope on the emerald, then I can grab it and scram. Bloodhound is shown about the factory. In this part of the plant, we blend the perfumes with amber grease. Amber grease? That's the rare perfume stuff that comes from Wales. A fascinating business, this. Simply fascinating. This is Mr. and Mrs. Pemberton, their factory's owners. Oh my, what woman wouldn't be thrilled with her own perfume factory? Madam, this is indeed a privilege. That's the truth. The Emerald Star is staring me right in the eyes. I've got to do something fast. Suddenly, as Bloodhound straightens, his hand accidentally sweeps up a pail of concentrated perfume. Oh! Uh, oh. How clumsy of me. Here, wipe it off with this rag. Please forgive me. I got that gartenia paste all over your hand. Oh, uh, don't worry about it. Come along, John. Night crowds out day, and through the darkening heavens wings a metallic skybird, a star rocket racer. Almost there, kid. Got any ideas cooking? Our nosy friend may be sniffing around the penthouse for that emerald. So we'll head right for that. And at that very moment, high on the slim rim of a rooftop... What was the big idea spilling that perfume on the dame's hand? That was a concentrated paste. Particles of it stuck to that ring. Now I followed the scent of gardenia to where the ring was hidden. Simple. I thought I smelled a man standing here. Say, that nosy ears comes in handy. Inside, and the human bloodhound sets on his super-scenting trail. <laughs> ah, all I get is the odor of wooden linen. After covering the entire room, suddenly... <laughs> Gardenia! The ring's behind this panel, probably in a wall safe. Well, what are we waiting for? Well, sn I smell somebody outside. Wrong, pal. You smell someone inside. That's the spangled kid. Don't leave me out of this. Boy, what a noise. Yeah, a nose for bad news. Uh, make a break, guys. For the door. Fear chewing at their heels. The thugs scramble through the door. Then, come on. This is where they blend the perfumes. Now I know my way around. I don't want to go around. I want to get out of here. But two catapulting, colorful figures halt the fugitive thugs. Signal's on, Stripesy. 
Z25. Check. What do against one? Let's ah, pray. Do have a spree. What's around that check? Behind a large display bottle, the kid displays his fistic prowess. As the fight leads to the top of a catwalk, Mr. Pemberton himself enters the scene. What's all this rocket? Wake and sleep. What? What's this going on? That's father's voice. Pemberton! Bloodhound thinks fast and acts twice as fast. Come here, pal. I can use you. Oof! Eh! Falling! Can't stop! And right into that vat of perfume! Some damp and fragrant moments later. Golly, kid, I like perfume, but that don't mean I gotta bathe in it. I'll luck with that, young man. Hmm, it seems that the bandits have escaped. What happened? Oh, it's that clever boy we met in uniform before. Perhaps you can explain all this? Easily, uh, you see it's like this. The kid explains about the sixth sense and the emerald. Those men will stop at nothing to get the jewel. Our company's two-masted schooner leaves tonight to hunt for whale on Greece. We'll hide on it. That's a good idea. I don't know why, but you two remind me of my son Sylvester and his chauffeur Dugan. Heh, <laughs> is that so? <laughs> if I didn't know that at this moment they were both home asleep, I'd think you were them. Ah, that reminds me. I think I shall call Sylvester and tell him to accompany us on our trip. Well, uh, we gotta go now. We'll be seeing you. Golly, kid, we better get home fast to catch that phone call. If we don't, they're likely to put two and two together and stumble onto our secret. Through the night sky rushes the Star Rocket Racer at such speed that the stars themselves are seen as mere blurs until after what seems an eternity of time, home. Kid, the telephone's ringing. Wow, make way for a man in a hurry. Hello, mother. What took me so long to answer? Why, I was sound asleep. What's that? I sound out of breath. Why, of course. I was running to answer the phone. Later, when the Pembertons arrive home. And so, Sylvester, you are to come along with us on this schooner. Dugan must come with us somehow. Then, Peter, I insist Dugan accompany us. He's quite ill, and the doctor suggests a sea voyage. Uh, sick. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm a sick man. Hmm. Perhaps that sea air would be a good tonic for you, Dugan. Next day, as the Pemberton retinue boards the two masters, furtive eyes watch. The sailors said they're going whale hunting for Amber Grease. Then the old dame wouldn't dare leave the emerald behind. Amber Grease, eh? Mm. One hour later, gunfire blasts the quiet of the City Museum of Natural History. Yes, officer, they stole my whale from the exhibit. A stuffed Antarctic whale. A whale? Now why would some gangsters be stealing a stuffed whale? The next day on the high seas. 
Sylvester, put down that book and breathe this air. Bracing, isn't it, Dugan? Yes, sir, G. Ain't everything peaceful and calm? Yeah, calm before the storm. Suddenly, a sailor's shout. Look, a whale. She looks dead. Perhaps there's some amber grease in her. We'll see. Lower a boat, mate. I'm going along. I don't want to miss this. There goes the boat. Say, kid, you look like something's wrong. There is. That type of whale is only found in the Antarctic Circle. And we're in the Arctic Circle. Dugan, time for us to put on our act. The act? Oh! He's seasick, ma'am. I'd better take him below. Oh, my poor darling. Yes, Dugan, I think you had better take him to his cabin. Meanwhile, the long boat approaches the whale. Captain, I think that whale moved. And abruptly, the whale comes to life. Okay, chumps. One move and I stitch Pemberton's chest with slugs. Pemberton, I'm going aboard that schooner. And this time, I have a hunch I'm getting that emerald. Aboard the schooner, Bloodhound reaches for the emerald ring when two uniformed figures intervene. The Kid and Stripesy. I don't... Duh. Hiya, nosy. Look, Chum, I brought you a present. Sneezing powder. Now use your sense of smell, if you can. Their handkerchiefs protecting them from the sneezing powder. The troubled team slams fist first into the sneezing thugs. I think I'll put you out of your misery, Chum. Suffering worst of all is the bloodhound for his super sensitive nose magnifies the most minute particles of sneezing powder. This is one time your super smeller is a handicap. Ah, a paintbrush. Whitewashing someone with your record is quite a job, but I'll try it. Bloodhound, you're whitewashed and all washed up. And united with Stripesy, the troubled team puts on the finishing touches. Right, kid. The Emerald's one gem the sixth sense won't get. My emerald is gone! Stolen! I had it in here and now it's gone! But there it is, right on your finger. No, that's glass. I had a paste replica made in case of trouble, but our bandit was too smart. With a shout, the kid pounds the deck to find. The bloodhound, he's gone! There he goes, swimming towards that seaplane. Later in the seaplane. How did you spot that ring on her finger as a phony? It had no odor of the gardenia perfume paste that I spilled on the original. So after the kid sucked me, I recovered and went below decks. Where no whiff of sneezing powder could affect me. I followed my nose and found the real emerald. I guess I fooled the kid and Stripesy. Hey. <laughs> but later, another jewel falls like a frozen droplet of green seawater as a metallic voice intones. First the diamond, then the topaz, and now the emerald. Only three more steps and then...
And we're back. Now, are just a few notes here that I have. Interestingly enough, in most of these stories, uh, we don't see our heroes arrive until about almost two, three, and sometimes four pages into the story. We're usually seeing the crook catch up with their prey and seeing how that plays out. Um, Bill Finger is not a formula man, as we can see, and he's twisting that around in this Star Spangled Kid chapter, because we begin, actually, with the kid in the stripesy, uh, in their rising action, and in a further twist, um, we're all chasing these different jewels and gems all over the place. Well, it just so happens that Star Spangled Kid doesn't have to worry about, uh, following any villain around or trying to find out where the gem is going to be because he knows where it is. His father owns the emerald that the bloodhound is going to be going after. Very interesting. As we said, uh, Pemberton's father, John Pemberton, is a banking uh, magnate. So it just goes to show that uh, I think it just makes for an ease of the story and it gets us right into the chapter in under two panels. And the kid and Stripesy have a chat about this as they're flying off into the Star Rocket Racer as it turns into an autogyro. And then we're introduced back to the Bloodhound. And uh, there's the usual that the, uh, this is not the Bloodhound's gangs with him. This is the Sixth Senses gang. And they're making sure the Bloodhound gets to where he needs to go to sniff out his prey which he finds at a perfume factory. And Bloodhound gets a job, well, smelling perfumes. And he can uh, smell these perfumes and able to tell which one of these are made, what makes up the perfumes, what makes the chemical makes up of these. So as the Bloodhound's getting the tour here, his orientation on his first day at, on the job, he learns that uh, the perfumes at this factory are made with ambergris. And apparently that's something that comes from whales. Now, <laughs> settle down, folks. Um, I know that whaling is a very, very bad thing, and it's something that we don't chat about very much. Uh, it's a rare natural resources that we have hunted to death, but uh, we're here in the 1940s, and um, whaling is seen desperately differently and I think we've seen that in a previous leading comics episode as well so it's uh yeah it is sad to think that whales are hunted down for bloody perfume of all things and of all things speaking of coincidences who owns the perfume factory but John and Mary Pemberton well who could have seen that coming and of course Mary is wearing on her finger the Emerald. They're introduced to the Bloodhound, and the Bloodhound is very contrite, you know, and very nice, and, and uh, you know, being introduced, he even kisses the hand of Mary right with the Emerald, and he gets a whiff out of it, and if an Emerald really has an odor, I guess, I guess the Bloodhound can't sniff it out. Now, I guess in the 1940s, we didn't do model sheets for these characters because Mary Pemberton looks a lot differently than we have seen her otherwise. 
I don't know how that's been working off in the, the, the actual Star Spangled Kid strip, but when we first saw her in leading comics, she looked a lot older. And here she's more to middle age, but still very commonly looking. And of course, uh, Star Spangled Kid and Stripes, he deduced that if they're going to look for the Emerald, they better find Mom and Dad, and they happen to know the social agenda, I guess, and guess what? We're off to the perfume factory. And always, how it always happens with the Kid and Stripesy, we get Fighty Fighty McFightstein. Uh, the Bloodhound runs away. And of course, this attracts the attention of John and Mary, and Mary realizes that somebody is after her emerald and is very shocked, very comforted by John. And uh, now we have the Lois Lane situation. Uh, I guess I could understand that they couldn't tell who the, the kid was under that garish costume and the cowl and everything. After all, the kid wears pretty much a full face mask. Still, you'd think a mother would know her child. And, but why do they not catch on to Dugan? Do they pay so little attention to Dugan in, his, in their own activities that they don't really know what he looks like out of the chauffeur's uniform? Well, could be. Well, Dugan is a big boy, and maybe those muscles do, uh, do a bit of a distraction. Let's just say because comics. But uh, Mumsy uh, is a little suspicious. She realizes this uh, this pair do remind them of somebody, and they she names them. She reminds them of her son Sylvester and and his uh, subservient Dugan, which reminds her to maybe uh, give them a, give uh, her, her boy a call and see if everything's on the up and up back at the Pemberton Mansion. Well. <laughs> Well, the Star Rocket Racer definitely Star Rocket Races, and uh, there's a very comedic thing of uh, the kid running in to catch the running phone and running through the window and crashing into the nightstand where the uh, where the phone is. I think that's kind of very lends a bit of comedy here. There's a little bit of levity here, and why couldn't shouldn't you have a levity about two guys running around dressed like a flag? Now, I don't know what it is about these Star Spangled Kid stories that we've been seeing in leading comics, but we always end up back out on the ocean. And Pemberton decides that he's going to hide from the Bloodhound by taking his, uh, his yacht out, on, out to sea and heading on up to the Arctic. Pardon me, did I say yacht? Sorry, it's a two-masted whaling ship that they're going to jump in. They're going to hunt for more ambergris to make perfume with. The Pembertons are. You greedy wartime capitalist, Pemberton. Henry Ford's making tanks and you're making perfume. Well, the Bloodhound uh, decides to capture a whale from the uh, local Museum of Natural History because I guess it's easy to get a whale carcass out of a Museum of Natural History. It's just that easy. And uh, Sylvester and Dugan do uh, go along with John and Mary onto the ship. Uh, the ship is called uh, Tallulah out of New York. They go into the Antarctic Circle. Somebody sees a whale carcass, which of course is the planted one from the museum. 
And lucky old Sylvester, he manages to, to uh, smell something bad. He, he's really ahead of the bloodhound on this one. He knows that that whale should not be in the Arctic. And when they head up to the whale, they do find that uh, the bloodhound and his gang are using it as a bit of a cover inside the carcass. And this was where things get really interesting. Bloodhound can usually smell someone coming. But at this point in time, uh, Pat and so, so Sly just decide to get very serious. They put on masks. Yes, pandemic masks. Mask up, people. Let's be careful. And they hit him with an assault weapon that apparently everybody always... is Something that is always carried on a whaling ship. Sneezing powder. I guess ships bound for the Northwest Passage do need to stock up on those essentials. But fortunately, he's got it. And um, this is something that the Bloodhound is going to be especially sensitive to with his hypersense and it pretty much immobilizes him while Sly and the kid take out the rest of the gang. However, we get into another one of these Sense Masters backup plans and along comes a float plane and the Bloodhound gets away. And this is another break in the formula. So far, we've been kind of accustomed that the uh, the leaders of the bad guys uh, tend to uh, to fail in their mission and somebody else has to pick up the pieces. This time, it is the Bloodhound that gets away with the Emerald. There has been a bit of a ruse that uh, Mary was actually wearing a fake Emerald made out of glass, but uh, that didn't fool Bloodhound at all. He jumps in the float plane and away they go. So how does Roy boil down this chapter in All-Star Squadron 56? Uh, his free adaptation that we're mashing into with the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Well, our necessary compression of nine pages into one uh, has the action start at the perfume factory where the Bloodhound was first kissing the hand of Mary Pemberton. And we go straight to the whaling ship. After, of course, we've introduced uh, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, and everybody has told, them to, told us who they are. And straight to the whaling ship, and then straight to the sneezing powder. And we know that this is a crisis on Infinite Earths because off of the uh, the two master, we can see red skies. Red skies abounding in at least two panels here. And other than that, pretty much ends as uh, we've told in the leading comics adaptation with the robot, a much slicker robot than Ed Dabrotka did. Picking up the emerald and and we're off to chapter five. And that will feature a familiar character known as the Vigilante. I hope you all have heard of him. So uh, with that, I'm going to leave you and uh, we'll be back with uh, the chapter five as the Vigilante meets Pallati. Bye for now. Um.